If you want to turn your Bibles while I'm talking, you can open up to 2 Corinthians 6.1. I, uh, I had this poster when I was growing up. I think I was like, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 or something like that. And um, there was a poster in my bedroom, and it's one of those like motivational type posters. Uh, it was a picture of... Uh, it was a picture of a baseball player, and he's kind of like in, like he, he had just connected with the ball, and he's like clearly going to hit a home run, and he's tan, and his like muscles are rippling, and he's like eye black, um, and, and like the lights are kind of like shining in his eyes, and you just know like the ball's out of here. And then under it was the verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I remember, you know, being 13 or 14 and that being in my room. And I didn't think much of it, but I kind of like subconsciously got the theology of the message, which was if I was ever going to be a professional baseball player, I needed to read my Bible and not kiss a bunch of girls in high school and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I say that because it's important when we talk about something like this, the life verse. This concept is funny because uh, there's, a, um, there's a culture created around Christianity. Have you ever noticed it? The culture, is, um, the culture is really weird, and the reason it's weird is because, like, you, you know, we, we have pictures of lambs in our houses, and, um, and we have, like, uh, we put verses on pillows, and have you ever seen testaments? They're like the mints that you give to people, and they're testaments, right? Like, that's like a whole new level of low for me as far as, like, Christian culture is concerned. But I look at that, and it's like, I kind of just, like, giggle because cultural Christianity, that's what, just what human beings do. We create culture, and sometimes we create it really, really weirdly. Um, but that's general faith, um, and God's called us to a personal faith, um, not a general faith. We enjoy the benefits of the general faith, um, and we can kind of laugh at some of the quirkier things, but God's called us to a personal faith, and what that means is that in personal faith, God's going to speak certain things to you straight from his word or through his Holy Spirit, and a lot of times they won't be Philippians 4.13 type verses, there'll be things that are really, really specific to your life experience. I asked a couple of my friends when Calvary was kicking this off, like friends that are outside of this community, people that I really respect, I was like, I was just curious, so I hit them up on text, and I was like, hey guys, what are your life verses? And these are like people I really, really value spiritually. One of my friends said this, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he's the Elijah who is to come. Who can get behind that verse, right? It's like there's not much momentum to that verse for you probably, but literally that means the world to my friend. How about this one? And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Not necessarily like a bumper sticker, right? It's like now that day was the Sabbath. They're like, oh, like I just want to convert. Convert me now. <laughs> How about this one? This is my favorite. Luke 9.60, I think you might remember this, when, when, the, when sir, uh, Jesus was calling his disciples, and one of the disciples said, I'm gonna, I want to join you, but I just want to bury my father first. And Jesus says this to him, let the dead bury the dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the gospel. I know like my parents had this like, uh, plaque above our, our, our dining room table. It said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Imagine if the plaque said, let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> But the crazy thing is, these, things, these verses to me, like when I started getting these texts back, I was super encouraged because I was like, you know what? This just means that God is very, very personal. And the way that he speaks to us is going to be very, very personal. And so 
when we get into this idea, this life verse series, here's what I promise. I promise it's not going to be cliche. I promise I'm not going to give you a life verse that doesn't really, like, that just kind of, like, applies to all of us because I think that fits the room best or something like that. I'm going to talk to you about what I think um, is my life verse, at least for right now. Life is long, and I don't know exactly where it's going and all the things that are going to happen with it, but I know the season that I'm in, the thing God's specifically given me. So I'm going to share that story with you, and I'm hoping that through sharing that story, the Holy Spirit is able to speak to you and supernaturally transform something. It's not the words I'm saying. It's just what the Holy Spirit's going to do in this room through this story. So, um, so with that said, I'll check my notes and see what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> um, let me just read, uh, let me just read the, the verse, 2 Corinthians 6.1. I'm going to read this. I don't know what translations you guys read from. Usually, like, New King James is really popular here. I read from the ESV, but this one's actually going to come from the NLT because I think it actually just, I think it just speaks the right words into this. It says, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's grace and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Um, if anybody asks me what my favorite Christian movie is, and let me tell you, I don't really like Christian movies, um, my favorite Christian movie is A Christmas Carol. And I know the first thing that everyone's going to say is, well, that's not a Christian movie, that's a Christmas movie. You have those confused, Mike. Uh, not really. I really think that this, the greatest story of redemption that's ever been told is A Christmas Carol. Um, how many people have seen this? Yeah, it's the story of, if you've been living under a rock, this is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, if that rings a bell. Um, and the story of Ebenezer Scrooge is that he has this one primary vice. What is it? What is it? Greed. He's greedy. And so he sits in his counting house, and he just, like, piles the coins one on another, and, and he won't pay his, uh, um, he has, like, a, an accountant in there, Bob Cratchit. He won't pay him very well. And um, he's just like, he holds on to everything he has, and it's made him miserable, and then everybody in the town is also miserable because of him. So when he walks by, everybody just kind of ignores them. So the story play takes place on Christmas Eve, and on Christmas Eve he goes back home, and you'll remember he's visited by the ghost of his old partner, Jacob Marley. And Jacob Marley is dragging this really, really big, long chain with him. And obviously he's freaked out upon seeing the ghost, but then he starts asking questions. He goes, why do you have that chain? And Jacob says, these are the chains I forged in life. I made them link by link and yard by yard. And then he looks at Scrooge and he goes, your chain was this long seven years ago. And Scrooge goes, tell me something, that, tell me something good. That sounds horrendous. And Jacob says, tonight you're going to be visited by three ghosts. And he was like, oh, is that something good? <laughs> And we know what the ghosts are, the ghosts of past, present, and future. Christmas past, present, and future. And Scrooge walks through this journey. He sees the decisions that he made that contributed in, that in the past that contributed to his present. And then the present, how he's affecting the people that are around him. And the future, what's in store for him based on the life that he's built. And then it kind of culminates in the ghost of Christmas future who takes him to a grave site. And at the gravesite, there's a stone there, and Ebenezer Scrooge sees his name on the stone. And then things start, uh, the snow starts kind of dropping off as the, as the uh, ghost of Christmas future points at it. And he starts to see that it might be his gravestone. And he looks at the ghost of Christmas future, and he says, uh, he goes, tell me, are these the shadows of the things that will be or the shadows of the things that may be? 
Because he's starting to process whatever this life is that I've created, if it creates this future, I don't want it anymore. And then the ghost keeps pointing at the stone and then eventually falls off. And what you see is it's Ebenezer Scrooge, born this date, and then he died Christmas Eve that night. And he goes in this tumultuous thing. He falls down into the grave and he's going down into blackness and he can't see anything anymore. And then he wakes up and he's in his bed and everything's fine. And he flings open the curtains in his bed and he finds out it's morning and that he didn't die that night. And he rushes over the window and he, and he lifts up the window and then he says, there's a boy there. And he, and he, goes, uh, he goes, you, what day is it? And the, and the boy goes, oh, it's Christmas day. I was like, <laughs> sorry. Trying my best. I got like a half Australian, half British accent. Mixed them together into, maybe that boy was half Australian. Um, but he goes, he goes, it's Christmas Day. He goes, the spirits did all night. And he feels this refreshing feeling of, oh my gosh, I get a little taste of redemption. Whatever the past was, I get to rewrite the future because I've been given a second chance. And so he tells the boy, he goes, go buy that prize turkey and give it to Bob Cratchit. And then he goes to a, um, a charity worker who asked him for money, and he whispers something into his ear. And we don't know how much it was, but what we do know is that it was a lot of money because the guy goes, really? And he goes, yes, and there's many more um, with that promise. And then he goes to his, uh, his estranged nephew's house. And there's this scene in my favorite version is the Jim Carrey version. There's this scene where he just comes to the door, and he, he goes, um, you know, he, he just says, will you have me? And you look at this Christmas day that Scrooge has experienced, and you're like, oh, my gosh. This is literally, like, the redemption story. This is, like, the life that you've created. All of a sudden, you're given the news of the gospel, and then it, everything changes. And you literally fling, op you fling open the curtains, and you, and you start giving it all away. And a lot of you guys in this room are looking at me really weird because you're like, Mike, you're doing sermons backwards. Like, you're supposed to tell this story at the end. We're supposed to go through the grimy details and, like, you know, our sin and all that kind of stuff. And then you're supposed to tell us the Scrooge story. So we walk out of here and we're like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go tackle the next thing in life. But that's kind of exactly the point because I was um, sitting down a couple years ago going through, like, a hard time. And I watched the Christmas Carol on Christmas. And I just had this thought pop into my head that said, what happened the day after Christmas with Scrooge? Like, what what was it like when you woke up the next day? Because if I know anything about the human experience, Scrooge probably didn't run to the window the next day and fling it open. And he probably gave a little bit less away. And things started to, you know, work started to come into play. And probably with his nephew, he started to have, like, things he had to work out in the past. And, and the reality is those ghosts don't really go away, right? Those ghosts of the past, I mean you realize that there are things that you've done and that you can change, but the ghosts are still there. And for us, a lot of the ghosts are still there, and they do come at night, right? A lot of times you're sitting there, and it's 2 a.m., and you're processing the things that have happened in the past and the mistakes that you made and regrets that you have, and the situations that you've created in the present are not really yet changed just because the feeling of redemption has overcome you and you want to be different. And so the future that you're weaving isn't necessarily different. You might still have anxieties about the future, and so all of those ghosts are still there to visit you. And the reality is, if I can like make the complex really simple, is that there's something about what happens in the emotional response of redemption that when you start walking into the future of it and the emotion starts to fade, there's something that happens that you didn't really know would happen, and that's that it just gets hard. 
and some of the promise of what was to come seems like it's unfulfilled. For me, in my life, I've been walking through a season of a couple years of that. And so I'm sorry when I share what my life verse is with you guys that it's not something that's like um, a Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans that I have for you to prosper, and then I'll show you the story of where God started me and how he prospered me and all the amazing things that, he, that I've been given. My story is a little bit different because I feel like over the past couple years, God has been gradually walking me through the transformation process of making what he will of me. Um, in light of that, I want to read this verse again. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. If you know anything about 2 Corinthians, you know that Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was, um, uh, basically, they had theological stuff that they wanted to wrestle with Paul about. They were disappointed with Paul in certain ways. There was different schools of thought that were emerging in their church. Um, Paul had been gone for a really long time. He started the church, stayed with them for 18 months, and then he was years away from them. And when they were writing a letter to Paul, this is Paul's response to that letter. And basically, if I can sum up what the Corinthian church was saying in all of the different things that they were talking to Paul about, it was really this. Paul, this is harder than we thought it would be. I think, like, we're a little bit disillusioned because we... Things were exploding when you were here, and a lot of things were going amazing, and now we're in the mundane of this person is fighting with this person about this, and we don't know if this is true anymore, and we're struggling because the city is putting pressure on us in this way, and we don't know what to do about it. Does that start to sound a little bit more like the human experience that we feel? Um, Paul, in response to that, gives them this verse, and he sets up this weird dichotomy that theologically a lot of us don't really jive with. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But he tells them, he says, don't accept the kindness of God and then ignore it. What does that mean? Apparently what Paul's saying is that there's, there's an idea here that you can actually accept your Ebenezer Scrooge come to Jesus moment. You can accept the kindness and the grace of God in a moment and then you can ignore the transformative work that can happen in your life after that. That's actually a possibility. If it wasn't a possibility, Paul wouldn't have, wrote, Paul wouldn't have written this verse. And so, um, for me, I've, I basically, when the Spirit kind of gave me this verse, and when I really wrestled with it and thought about it, it was, at, it was at a time when I was really, really struggling with the idea of, why isn't this easier like, why isn't God just moving in my life in ways? Why am, I, why am I 25, 26, 27 and struggling with the same things that I was struggling with at 20 years old? Why is that happening? I thought this would be done with. If I like, you know how in high school they have like little note cards and they say, write to your future self about what, and I would write to my future self. I'm so glad you beat all of the things that you, you know, struggled with when you were my age. And I'm so glad you don't think about those things anymore. I'm so glad you make all the right decisions now and everything's perfect. But the reality is I became the age that you would write that postcard to and not a lot of things were perfect. And I still had the same struggles and there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't beat. And as you start to unpack this, I think what you find is it's like the transformative work of Christ, when you first hear that message of the gospel, the, the transformative work, work of Christ is that there is a renewing of the mind, 
But the undoing of, of yourself takes a, takes a really, really long time. And here's, tell me if this experience is true. Have you found this? It's almost like a little bit like those Russian dolls where there's like another doll inside of the doll. <laughs> Anybody ever experienced this? It's like, I thought I had my problem and that God had worked and it was done and over. And then I kind of like, I was like, well, here I am. Like God pulled this little Russian doll out and there's the real me. And it was like, nope, you'll never believe it, but... There's another one in there. <laughs> and he's like, oh, geez, I didn't know there was two. And so you're like, great, okay, here. And it was like, there's another one. And this process of Christian life, like this transformative process, there's so much in you that actually needs to be surrendered. It's like, for any of you guys who are like 50 or 60 years old in here and have been doing this process, kind of like, like it's like, where is the end? Where's the last little Russian doll that is me? And how small is it? <laughs> So I felt like that. I was like, God, like I'm wrestling with this stuff I didn't think I would be wrestling with anymore. He brought me to this verse. Um, and I think that, I think that when, I, um, when I look at this, uh, one of the things I, that, I, that I really had to wrestle with is, God, why do I ignore the transformative process that you have? What is it about me that's kind of like, so, that reacts so violently against what you want to do in my life? And I feel like when I really thought about it and processed it, um, basically, God was like, well, you're a lot like Corinth. You're a lot like the church in Corinth. Uh, to give you a history of Corinth, Corinth was, a, was like a trade city. There was a lot of commerce there. Um, they were really rich. They were really cultured. And they were really sexual. That's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but, um, but what I mean by that is that, you know, Corinth, like, because they were in the middle of, like, a, because they were just... Because they were a trade center in commerce, they were, they were very wealthy. And then they were cultured because they were near Athens. And so they got a lot of the philosophy, intellectualism, and art from Athens. And they were sexual because they were sexual. I don't know exactly why. But um, to play the Corinthian was like a Greek word that it directly translated. To play the Corinthians was to have sex with someone. So if it was like, oh, she had sex with him, it's like she played the Corinthian. So that's how sexual this place was. And... Um, and it's funny because I think like when I look and parallel my life with the, with, um, the culture of Corinth, like if we're all honest, does the culture of Corinth sound like any culture that you might know? Right? <laughs> like if you look at that, it's like, what's rich, cultured, and sexual? Um, that sounds a lot like America to me. And I know that I'm a product of the culture that I was raised in, and so the, I'm not unaffected by these things. When it comes to being rich, I know for a fact that I don't really need money for money's sake, you know? But I do know that money has created the metric in our society by which you can gauge whether you're successful or not, and I pay a lot of attention to that. And so in the things that I chase in life, sometimes I've gotten to places where I'm like, I don't even want this, why am I doing this? And the reality is, embedded at the bottom of it is, because you really enjoy the metric because you're proving to yourself that you're successful. Very Corinthian of you. How about the cultural aspect? Well, I love art and philosophy and culture in general. And we know social media has made culture kind of like spring out of control. And so what you have is like social circles of um, industry or just friend groups or whatever. And these social circles are kind of aspirations that you have. If I could break into that social circle, amazing things would happen. If I could know these people, I'd probably be happy because they're interesting enough. Like, those kind of things are thoughts that I would naturally have. That's my natural bent. Um, and, like, getting into the in crowd is, like, something very American and very Corinthian. And it's a struggle of mine. And then sexual. 
I'm just gonna say that. Because <laughs> that's a weird thing, but it's like obviously sex is pervasive in our culture, and I don't really know if you can be my age and have gotten away unscathed. Like it's just like, I remember seeing, a, seeing some, t- some statistic that said, if you are alive today, you will see more ads today than somebody in 1950 saw in their entire lifetime. And half of those ads are pretty pornographic. I remember somebody teaching me about advertising. They were like, the key of advertising is um, you got to find something that people want. you you got to convince them that they need to have it, and you need to put a half-naked woman somewhere in between. And that's basically how you sum up the advertising that we see today. And our culture is really, really sexual. Um, I call this category of things, just the rich, cultured, and sexual, I call this the world out there. Um, The world out there is one of the reasons why I tend to ignore the transformative work of Christ. Because the world out there kind of presses in on me and offers easy escapes for things. If you want to do the hard work of really uncovering why you value yourself and why you consider yourself valuable, that's really hard work and it's really grimy. But you know what's easy? Go get a job and work really hard and make a lot of money and have other people think that you're successful. As far as culture, you know, I wonder why I want to get into the circles that I want to get into. Is it because I need intellectual stimulation? Is it because I have a... You know, is it because I have a desire for great art, or is it because I have a desire to like be on some intellectual level, level, or is it because being in that circle somehow completes something in me that's absolutely missing? Do I want to look at that and find out what that is? And on the sexual side of things, like, is there something in our culture? Is it so easy to feed on that because there is something that we're missing sexually that is completely unfulfilled? I remember. Um, I remember I was in this situation with this girl, and she was, like, literally wrong in every single way. Um, And it was kind of like pushing the boundaries of seeing where, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, We were in that stage, and I just remember, like, something happened, and I was like, I was going to go meet up with her. And I knew it was wrong, and I knew whatever was going to happen wasn't going to go to a good place, but I literally... I put on my clothes, I jumped in the car, and I remember turning the key in the ignition, and stronger than most times I've ever heard God in my life. It was like as close to as an audible voice as I could have heard. Um, I heard the Holy Spirit just say, everything is permissible, but you decide how hard you want your life to be. And I look at the sexual, um, I just look at the sexual climate in our country, and I look at it around my friend groups and the people that I'm close to or whatever, and I see this and I'm like, man, like, Really, we live in an age of grace, and God's, God's, got, God's got it. He covers a lot of this stuff. But I wonder if we make life so, so hard for ourselves because of the things that we're doing sexually. But anyway, I call that the world out there. Um, that's the world out there. <laughs> and those things press in on you, and they, they offer you easy access to quick fixes, and that's why we gravitate towards those. Very Corinthian. But I think another reason the Corinthians were a little bit disappointed and disillusioned was because there's a world in here that doesn't seem to fix very well either. The world in here is different than the world out there because it's not necessarily pressing into you at all times. Usually it just comes out under pressure or stress. Um, These are things that are a little bit closer to your heart, but sometimes a little bit less easy for you to see. It's very, it's very easy to be able to just recognize, you know what, like, I think that it's just that I want to work hard and do well, but I'm really looking for 
uh, the approval of my peers. It's a lot harder to see some of the things that are really, really deep inside of you. They come to the surface at really w weird times. For me, they've come to the surface at times when there was a little bit of upheaval, upheaval in my life. It could be that a relationship ended or something happened in family or whatever, and I won't get into all the personal details about that, but when I've come to those moments, like those kind of like rock bottomish moments, I realize that the external pressures weren't as much as whatever it was that's going on in the physical makeup of Mike Gaglione. There's something about me that holds on to certain things. One of the things that I realized, especially when it comes to relationships, is that I have a lot of, um, there's something about me that wants to control things. I have no problem being honest and vulnerable with people, but at the same time, I want to maintain an element of control in how I offer myself to somebody in vulnerability. And what that does is it creates a weird thing because it doesn't create much of a relationship where there's a lot of love. Um, you can connect, kind of, but you can't really get into the depths of love because you don't make yourself vulnerable to somebody else. That's weird. Because as you go through the process of processing that kind of stuff, in some ways you didn't see it, and then when you do see it, you're like, what do I do about this? And really the only thing I think that you can do is you sit there and you start praying, and you say, God, there are things emotionally in my life that I can't even touch. I don't know if it's because of the way that I was raised or stuff that I went through or whatever, but I can't even begin the process of doing those things but if I don't, I'm going to live my life hurting people around me, sometimes the people that I love most. And so for me, that's that. For you, it could be addiction. Obviously, addiction is something that's super pervasive. You hold on to something because it's like you, you walk this line of, I have God in my life, and I'm even pushing forward in some spheres, but I have this one thing that I need to hold on to, and it just kind of exists in the corner of your soul, and it's like it's too special, it's too precious. If I lost that, I feel like I would lose everything. Some of you guys might have bitterness. You might not really like how things have turned out in life, or you think that you've been dealt a bad uh, deck of cards. And so there's a bitterness there where you're like, you know what, no matter what kind of progress I make, one thing I do want to hold on to is I want to sit with the, I, I want to hold tight to the idea that I can keep this, um, that I can keep this bitterness, that I'll always be able to think this way because I know, I know that I wasn't given a fair shot like everyone else was. You're not really willing to let that go because it kind of almost feels safe and comfortable to be there. Um, for some people, it's comfort. Like comfort is just the thing that you just absolutely can't let go of. It's like, God, I will trust you in all kinds of ways and I'll give money and I'll do all, I'll do all kinds of things, but one thing I can't, give up is that you would call me out of my comfort zone. I want to be able to wake up, go to Starbucks and get my mocha latte with an extra shot. I want to be able to go to work and everything's kind of in control. I want to be able to go home to my house and, and have that perfectly in control. I want comfort in all levels. That's the only thing. Don't shake my comfort, God. And so you hold on to that. Um, and then for other people, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, there's a uh, this idea, this idea of holding on to things instead of letting God do his transformative work, for me, like I've been on this slow, gradual process over a couple years of recognizing that there are these things in me and it's been a process to try and let them go because we don't let go of them willingly. I definitely don't. I don't know about you. 
but we don't let go of them willingly. There's a resistance to the process. I don't think anybody captured this resistance as well as C.S. Lewis did in his book, The Great Divorce. I don't know if you've ever read The Great Divorce, but it's, it's, about, um, it's basically about heaven and hell. And um, it's a beautifully metaphorical book. I don't really think that I'm smart enough to like, understand it, so I kind of like almost do the Cliff Notes version of it. But there are certain excerpts in it that are amazing. But to understand the excerpt that I'm going to read, one thing you need to know is that um, there are those in, in the story, C.S. Lewis is an observer of heaven and hell and the relationship between them. And so the ghosts that are in hell are actually allowed to take the bus to heaven. And frequently, the buses just go back and forth. So they can catch a bus anytime they want to heaven. And... Um, and a lot of the ghosts do. They want to check out heaven and they want to see what it's like. And so they just want to kind of kick the tires of heaven and see if it's a place that fits them. Really, really interesting theolog theological concept, right? Because the idea is like we have this huge, uh, we have this idea of like judgment where it's just like God separates the goats from the sheep and all of that. But C.S. Lewis was like, eh, I actually think that for most people, there's a lifetime process of choosing to be separated from God. And maybe that never even ends. And so he wrote this book, The Great Divorce, where these ghosts always have the choice to embrace God and what heaven is, but a lot of times they choose not to. Here's an excerpt from one of those, um, from one of those observations that C.S. Lewis had. It's a little bit long, but I want you to kind of visualize this. I'll do my best to help you. And then I also want you to kind of see how your story parallels with the things that you hold on to. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another, as smokes differ. Some had been whitish, this one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard. And it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he, w he turned its head to the reptile and with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said, wag... He said, but the lizard wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward, away from the mountains, away from heaven, back towards hell. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that, we, that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and my body, too, like the morning sun at the beginning of day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that. But he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit? An angel, as I now understood him. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything as drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. May I kill it? 
Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be much better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling very well today. It would be silly to do it now. I'd, I'd have to be in good health for the operation, some other day perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present in this day. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You would kill me if you, if, if I, if you did. It is not so. Why? You're hurting me right now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that, really. It isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get, a, get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without me asking? Before I knew it, it would be all over right now. I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Do I have permission? The angel's hands were almost closed around the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what he was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are right now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be good. I'll admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give, you, I'll, give you, I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may... All right, go on. Can't you get it over with? Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but end it whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken back on the turf. Oh, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, this is C.S. Lewis, observing this. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, between me and the nearest brush, bush, unmistakably solid, but growing ever moment solider, the upper arm and shoulder of a man. Then brighter and still stronger the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completion of a man. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and growing bigger as it struggled. But as it grew, it changed. Suddenly, I started, rubbing my, started back and rubbed my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. It rippled with swells of flesh and muscle. It was whinnying and stamping its hooves. And each stamp, the, the land shook and the trees rattled. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed its bright body. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself to the feet of the burning one, and embraced him. In joyous taste, the young man leapt upon the horse's back, 
Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell and then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew it was happening. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were like a shooting star far off in a plain and among the foothills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them. They vanished, bright themselves into the, the, into the rose brightness of the everlasting morning. And if you don't really follow what's happening in that story, basically, the ghost is you. <laughs> and the lizard is the thing that you hold on to. The angel is the redemptive work that Christ really, really wants to do in your life. The man, is, the man is who you could become. And the horse is the thing that you let go of. And that's crazy because I think the most beautiful thing about this, the little, little myth that C.S. Lewis has in this is that there's these things that we hold on to, but God wants to make them the horse that we ride on to whatever future that he has. I honestly believe in going through a season like this for myself the pathway towards your greatest flourishing is always going to be right straight through your greatest fear. That whatever the thing is that you cling most, most strongly to, I really, really feel like that's the thing that God wants to use in your life the most. With that said, I want to read this verse again, and I want you to not think of it now as something of condemnation, something that Paul's saying like, hey, make sure you keep yourselves in check. I want you to read it as Paul's encouragement to them, something that he wants to remind them of the truth of. Let's read the verse again. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept the marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Before we close, I just want to encourage you in three things. I think this is like, for me, walking through this season, like I said, I wish I could give you this redemptive story of like, this is where it netted out. Look at beautiful little me. But I'm in the midst of this process, and there's three things that I've learned that are very, very important to letting God's transformative work happen in your life. The first thing is really simple. It's a G.K. Chesterton quote that I love. All of these are going to be quotes. The first one's a G.K. Chesterton quote. He says, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And all that means is, man, like if you're sitting in a seat right now and you're like, I really want God's transformative work to happen in my life, I just don't know how to make it happen, just do it badly. For me, part of the process was just coming home at night and before I went to bed, instead of watching Netflix or scrolling on my phone, I just prayed and I was like, God, I do this badly. I think this is hard, I know it's not supposed to be, can you do something about that? And God's met me in all kinds of ways. The next quote is a quote um, that I really love, uh, and it's, um, it's about how things are not too late. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. <laughs> and for some of you guys in the room, you're probably like, you know what, like, I'm 10 years into this and nothing's changed. And I don't know what to do anymore. I don't really, I, I've tried and stopped and started, and like, I've given up on that. And God gave me transformative work at some time, but I don't know if anything more is coming. I'm telling you, the best time was probably 20 years ago, and you might regret the 10 years that you haven't really made progress in an area, but plant the tree right now. Just start the process. And it's hard, and it's ugly, and you've got to uncover all kinds of things about yourself, and you've got to look at yourself in the mirror, but I think it's worth doing, and it's worth doing right now. Today is the day of salvation. And the last thing is a simple quote about community. 
Um, I don't know who said this, but it's, it's the, the quote says, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. <laughs> and I know for me, walking through the process of transformation, a lot of times I've needed people in this community and even outside of this community, I've needed people to walk me through knowing and uncovering myself. I don't think it's just like a you and God, like, okay, I leave this, this service and then I run to my apartment and I just sit there and God's gonna do this transformative work in my heart. I don't really think so. I think that within this community, a lot of us need to be digging into each other's lives and we need to be confessing things, we need to be sharing things, and we really need to get into the kind of community with each other where we're able to be the kind of friends that can create the kind of futures that we all imagine are possible and that Christ definitely knows is possible. I think this process is hard. I was like, when I was just like putting together this message, I was like, man, I'm Mike. I'm like the funny guy who makes everybody feel good and like I can like do all the tricks to make everybody laugh at just the right times. And I'm just gonna preach this hard message that I'm in the middle of like a season that's tough, you know? But I think here's the thing. This is what I wanna encourage you. If you relate at all to this story, I will say this. It's hard, but worth it, like marriage, marathons, doctor degrees, family life, art, poetry, cooking, and for me, baking the perfect chocolate chip cookie that tastes absolutely amazing. Everything that's worth it in life is really, really hard. But I think you can do it, and I think that we can do it together. And so with that said, I want to read you a verse that coincidentally I started with. And if you want to turn there, you can, but if not, I'll just read it. It's straight out of Philippians 4, 4, 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you've learned and received from me, everything you've heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.